A few years ago, uh, as our family does every year, we go um, up to a cottage with my wife's family, her brother and sisters and their family, and uh, we've outgrown the cottage, so a few people have tent trailers they take, um, but once in a while we need to tent as well. So a couple years ago I said, ah, we'll just we'll stay in a tent, it's fine. Um, we're not big campers, but we've gone camping and we've got stuff, so I brought along our air mattresses and tent and it was, it was fine. It became very, very evident the first night, uh, actually within the first hour, that the air mattress we were on was not going to cut it. And so I kept uh, pumping it up with our pump uh, about every hour and about every hour we'd find ourselves on the ground. And so uh, the next afternoon I dragged out uh, the other ones that I'd brought because we, we've gone camping and we've got stuff and uh, none of them worked. So that wasn't a very good camping trip. I think somehow we ended up inside on couches or something like that. A few years before that, we've done a few camping trips with our family. And when I say camping, I mean like provincial parks with like running water and proper bathrooms and stuff like that. So it's not really that much camping. Uh, but we took this tent that we'd used for years and on two separate occasions, I figured, yeah, we'd be fine. But torrential downpours came, and by the next morning, we had inches of water, which are fine because we were on air mattresses that worked. See, I, I knew they worked at some point in time, so I brought them. However, uh, the blankets and sleeping bags that uh, hung off the air mattress soaked up the water. You know, it like comes up, so we we're all wet. It was horrible. Point being this. We all depend on things. We have things in our life that we think, yeah, I can trust this thing, I can depend on this thing, and we really don't realize how much we depend on them until it lets us down, and sometimes literally if it's an air mattress. And in Psalm 16, we see David talk about how he depends on God. And throughout Psalm 16, he shares several responses that we'll look at this morning, how he responded to the reality that he had learned that he could depend on God. And my hope this morning is that you will learn that as well. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Psalm 16. We're only going to look at verses 5 to 11 this morning. You can follow along in the screen, on the screen as well or on the Bible app. You can look up Country Hills Church under events and follow along there. Psalm 16, uh, verse 5 and 6. Lord, you alone are my inheritance, my cup of blessing. You guard all that is mine. The land you have given me is a pleasant land. What a wonderful inheritance. So David's first response is that of thanksgiving or being thankful. And he begins by being thankful by talking about his inheritance. Now, when I first read uh, inheritance and was looking at it, I was tempted to kind of sidestep that. Because in Old Testament times, typically their viewpoint was more of the temporal and physical things. So when they thought of inheritance and of God's blessing, typically you find them listing the things that God had given them. And that's not wrong, that's not bad. That's where they were and we were as humanity in our journey with God and how he revealed himself. So he did a lot of physical blessings and so I thought, well, that, that can't possibly um, impact us today. Let's just sidestep that because God does more than just physical blessings. But then I was reminded of something that I pray over my family often. It's something I've adopted for a number of years, taken from Colossians 1. And here's just a part of Paul's prayer. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power, so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. 
May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you, and here's the, here's the part I want to focus on, to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. So Paul takes the Old Testament, Old Covenant language of inheritance and places it onto the New Covenant, New Testament reality of being saved by grace. And he prays this over those in uh, the town of Colossae, over the Colossian church. And so he's thankful for his inheritance. And so while we understand that, yes, David was looking at his inheritance. So the promised land is a big deal to Israel. It's very important in, our, in the biblical narrative. Also, what he'd been given as king. So the kingdom he was to oversee on behalf of God, that he was to be a, a man after God's own heart. All those things he, that God had given him in order to do and be who God had called him to be. That's an inheritance, but there's something much deeper because all believers, when we look at what Paul is saying, all believers have equal access to God. It doesn't matter how well you obey him or not. We have equal access to God, and if you are in Christ, you have a equal inheritance. And the interesting thing about inheritance is that our true inheritance and David's is not the promised land, the crown, the kingdom, or for us, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, when Jesus returns. So eternity, the place. So it's not the promised land or the promised eternal land. It's God himself. And the reason why we can think about promised land for David or you know, heaven when Jesus returns is because of who is there. And David is very clear that his inheritance is God himself. And so then he extends his thankfulness beyond this inheritance to talk about this cup of blessing. And David uses the same language in one of the most uh, well-known psalms, maybe even if you're not as churched, uh, haven't been to church very much, or don't know anything about the Bible, maybe you've heard Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I will not want. And David uses this language, my cup overflows. In other words, my cup of blessing overflows. So the cup of his life filled with God's goodness overflows. Um, so there's more than just pointing out land. There's more than just pointing out the stuff around us because we can be thankful for what God has done. You can look at your life and see things that God has done past and present and know that he'll continue to do good things, practical things, physical things. But there's also something deeper. There's an inheritance to come, but there's an inheritance in God himself. Our inheritance is that Jesus promised that in going away and ascending to heaven, something much better would happen, and that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, would come and live in us. God would always be with us. And while David didn't have a fully formed idea of what that meant, in some sense he was saying the same thing. We can be thankful for our inheritance because our cup of blessing overflows. And it's interesting because in the first four verses of that psalm, David gives us this contrast of something that happens if you don't follow God versus what happens if you do follow God. So he contrasts those who choose to follow other gods, other idols. It's not as common for us, uh, maybe in North America, unless you've come from a different religious um, background to choose other gods. But we definitely put other things in God's place. So we wouldn't say in North America, if you've grown up in North America, that we have idols. But we absolutely do. We have things and other gods, sometimes it's self, 
that take the place of God. And so when we choose other gods, David says, uh, troubles come and troubles multiply. So following your own way, picking a different way, doing what you think others want you to do, following other gods, other idols, that leads and lends itself to trouble. And those troubles multiply and multiply and multiply. And then David here says, but my inheritance, I'm thankful for this cup of blessing that multiplies and multiplies and multiplies and overflows. So as much as trouble multiplies for those who choose other ways and other gods, other false gods, our blessing multiplies exponentially more. And our inheritance in God, the very fact that he's with us, we can look to him and depend on him. So when we consider who God is and what he's done for us and what he'll continue to do, we can be thankful. And then the second response is to go beyond simply being thankful and to consider blessing and to bless God in return. The word there means to um, kneel before and to worship. And so David says this in verse 7 and 8. I will bless the Lord who guides me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he is right beside me. So he blesses God. He worships God. He thanks God. I don't know if he physically got on his knees or not, but the words he used lends itself to that. He's giving his whole life over to God. So he realized that God is blessing him, and he blesses God back in return. Not only does David have an inheritance with God, um, but he has this intimacy with God. And his thankfulness and his blessing of God is, is centered around one specific thing, at least here. We can see in lots of other Psalms he's thankful and he blesses God for lots of stuff. But here he says... It's for your guidance. And so he's got this intimacy with God where God is guiding him. So it's not that I have this inheritance in a promised land and I've been made king and God has given me this role. So for you, you can say God's planted me in this home, in this school, in this job, in this family for a purpose. He's given me what I need to live for him. So he's up there, I'm down here, and I better just go about what I should do and hopefully I I do really well. David says, no, no, it's, it's much better than that. God is with me, and he guides me. And he says, he guides me in the day when I'm aware of it, and he guides me in the night. From where? His heart. Isn't that interesting? The people you spend your time with, whoever you spend time with most, whatever you watch most, whatever you listen to most, that's the way your heart is formed and shaped. You begin to talk like, act like, think like, choose like, the people or the things or the values that you're around. And David has spent so much time with God that his heart itself, his default behaviors and thoughts are so shaped by God that even in the night when he wakes up and he's worried, he's considering things, his heart is instructing him. His heart has become so alike God. And in fact, if we go back to 1 Samuel 13, we learn that that's why God chose David in the first place. So the first king of Israel was named Saul. He was head and shoulders above everyone. He was very handsome. He was the kind of king you'd want to pick. Everyone would vote, right? So if he's going for prime minister, you'd be like, yep, check the box. Don't even have to think about it. But his heart was not set on God. And eventually he he was removed from that position. And God gave it to this little shepherd boy. Why? Because his heart was after God's. And here, 
David is saying the, the impact of that. The result of having a heart after God is that even in the night, even when you wake up, even when there should be worry, even when you're not at church or spiritually focused or doing things that would lend itself to be led by God, the things we typically think about God's leading and guidance, his heart's instructing him. His life is so shaped by God. And, and the, the sense here is that we can have that intimate relationship with God too. We can depend on God so much and become so alike Jesus that at all parts of our life, God just naturally weaves into the fabric of our thoughts, our hearts, our mind. What a wonderful promise. So what we've learned is that David learned to draw near to and to depend on God. David had learned to draw near to and then because he did that, to depend on God. So there's a couple questions for you to consider. Do you live your life like God is right beside you? Do you live your life like God is right beside you? And if you did, what would change? Right? So do you live your life like God is right beside you? He's with you through everything. And, and would your life change if you actually lived that way and sought his guidance in that way? He has a third response, but um, it, it's in response to something that happens when we learn to draw near to God. When we depend on God, something happens in our life. And David says he's, he, he's had this result, and it's rest. That he, he can rest. He doesn't have to live in this state of anxiety and worry. But instead, because he's learned to draw near to God, because he's depended on God, he has this rest, and so his response to that is the third one, gladness, gladness. So, verse 9 to 11. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body, what? Rests in safety. So, although there's a spiritual component to that, remember, David literally had people chasing him and trying to kill him, and his body was not safe, and he can say, even sleeping in the back of a cave with people after him, with Saul, the king, and his army after him, his body rests in safety. Four, you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. That's a mouthful and there's a lot there, but his response becomes one that's rhetorical. Right? It's like someone saying, Hey, David, why are you living different? Hey, David... Don't you see what's going on around you? Don't you see the trouble that's going on around you? Why are you so different? And it's like he rhetorically says, what do you mean? Isn't it obvious? It's the Lord. Of course. No wonder. It's obvious that I'd be glad because I depend on God. I rejoice. He's thankful. He's worshipful. And he's glad. They're all similar but a little, little bit different as he walks through this. So, he suggests that it should be obvious why we are glad and why we're lives, our lives are at rest, have a different foundation. And it's because we're intimate with God. It's because we have God so in our life. Our hearts are so meshed with him. We're so in tune with the Spirit. That's, that's what the filling of the Holy Spirit means. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, simply means you're connected to God. You're actively asking God what to do and asking him to empower you and guide you. That's being filled with the Spirit. There's nothing mystical or magical. It's not only for certain super spiritual people. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have his Spirit in you, and you can depend on him, and you can be 
glad. And so I would agree, if we have Jesus in our life, and we're actively following him, and we're depending on him, our lives should look different, right? The way we respond in trouble, the way we respond to gladness, the way we respond to anxiety, the way we respond to depression and pain and all these things should be different. Not because those things are wrong and not because we should not deal with it. Notice David doesn't say, put the smile on your face and come to church. And when someone, you know, says, hey, how are you doing? You say, fine. And internally you're really struggling and you sweep it under the carpet and that's a good Christian. You've, you've all experienced that, right? We know that's like the case with a lot of places, a lot of churches, a lot of people. It's the expectation in a church family, you're fine, and you smile, and you don't struggle, because we have Jesus. That's not what David's saying, and that's not what I'm saying. We struggle, and we're anxious, and we have things to be worried about, and we have mental health issues, and we have all these things, but our response and how we walk through that should be different than those with no hope, because we have Jesus with us. We have someone we can depend on and who can guide us and who can do a work internally that external tips, tricks, tools, and helps which are good and helpful cannot. And those things together mean our responses throughout life can be different. So it should be obvious. But then David makes this jump between the no wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice my body rests in safety to for you will not leave my soul to rot in the grave. And he makes this jump from being thankful about what God is doing in his life to being thankful for what God will do in his death. Now, we know that the afterlife, okay, for Israel and for David, for Old Testament um, followers of God, they, they just, it's not fully formed. God hadn't revealed. So it's not like David's thinking heaven, hell, anything like that. When Jesus returns, he's still waiting for the Messiah to come, and there's still prophecies that haven't been shared yet that God hasn't given. His idea of, you know, Israel being rescued, it, it, it's just not fully formed yet. And so when he's talking about these, these things about God will not let me rot in the grave, he'll, he'll raise me back to life, there's just a sense that something has happened in David as God has given him this psalm and he's written it down. And it now becomes prophecy. So while there's a sense that there is, I mean, there is trust. David's saying, no, I, I can trust you in life. I know I can trust you in death. Whatever's out there, David's saying, I'll be with you. But there's a prophetic aspect to this. This is pointing to Christ who will come more than a thousand years after David. And we know this to be the case because on the day of Pentecost, Jesus said, I need to go and ascend into heaven. It's better. My spirit will come. Wait in Jerusalem. And on the day of Pentecost, the believers are gathered together, and the Holy Spirit comes, and what seems like tongues of fire um, ascends and rests upon their, their heads, and they, and they receive the Holy Spirit for the first time. God's Spirit no longer comes upon people for a single time, for a single purpose. And then we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks, how that, how that works, because we'll read a psalm where David talks about that. But the Holy Spirit is with us. And so while Peter is preaching to all the Jews from all around the world who are speaking different languages, and they hear the gospel in their own language, one of the things he says is he quotes verses 8 to 11 of Psalm 16, and he says, this is about Jesus. He says, this, what David said, that you probably know, because he's speaking to Jews who would probably know this. Many of them would have it memorized. That's about Jesus, this one you're looking to, he died, but God didn't let him rot in the grave. He rose to new life so that we might have pleasure and eternity and protection. 
and his presence forever. But then Paul does the same thing in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, he's preaching in Antioch, and he quotes part of this as well. And he says, hey, just so you know, this Jesus who I'm claiming is resurrected is prophesied. And he uses these verses as key to not only explain that Jesus would rise from the dead and prove that he is God, but also that through him there are forgiveness of sin. There is freedom and there is life. And this pleasure and this presence and this protection that David's talking about, Paul says, it's this guy. It's this guy I worship. This king of the Jews, you call him. This, this, this one who's the leader of the people of the way. This Jesus Christ, he's, he's the one. And so David gets prophetic here, uh, likely without knowing it. God is with us, and he invites us to be with him for eternity. He won't turn his back on us when we follow him. Even after death, he's with us, and he invites us into something we can never even begin to imagine. As, as much as there's books and songs and things written off the biblical account of what spending eternity with God is like, we just can't even imagine. None of them even touch it. And so one day all our needs, every single one, will be taken care of. There's no trouble. There's no possibility of sin. Anything good you've ever imagined is bad in comparison to what Jesus will do in and through and for us when we spend eternity with him. For those who believe in him, for those who follow him. And the book of Revelation says, for those who endure to the end. And don't give up. Don't turn their back on Jesus. And so Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, the New Testament says. And so David is saying, we can have these prophetic promises. And he goes on to share some of those. David says that this is a prophecy, or uh, Peter and Paul say this is a prophecy, but the parts that David shares are promises. The promises are this. God will show you the way of life. So this prophetic promise that there will be one who will come and he'll rise from the dead. Here's one of the things that he will do in your life. He will show you the way. So David, without knowing it, is doubling down on this reality that God guides us. He's with us. He's in, in us. He never leaves us. In the day, you can know his guiding. In the night, you can know his guiding. And so God will show us the way. First promise. Second promise. He will show you the path from death to life, David says. The way of uh, sinfulness and apart from God and where troubles multiply, there's a way from death to life. It has nothing to do with your obedience, your church attendance, your goodness. It has everything to do with belief that Jesus came to die to be victorious over sin so that we could be free from the power of sin and live in a new way here, a little bit of resurrection. He brings new life to us internally and eventually Jesus will return and make all things new in the physical realm. So isn't it funny? In the Old Testament, they focus so much on the physical stuff and in the New Testament, they realize that Jesus physically rose again and he gives us that new life, but it's not a physical thing because I, I don't know about your body, but my body's not made new yet and, and the world around me still has the power of sin, but we don't focus so much on the physical stuff, but eventually that focus on the physical stuff and the focus on the spiritual stuff, it's all going to come to fruition and Jesus is going to make that all good. In fact, uh, what I said on Christmas Eve is Jesus becomes our light. Revelation says he, he's the sun. He, he literally is a light in heaven. He takes care of all our needs. There's trees there that bear fruit in season. We'll ha never have a need. And so David says that's a promise. There's a way from death to life. And the third one is that we have the joy of his presence. There's joy in realizing that God is with us. When we sing I depend on you. If it's just words, 
you might like the music. You might go home and you might say, that was a very nice service, and I like that song, and it goes very nicely. But if you depend on him, and if you're intimate in relationship with him, there's joy that comes with that, where you say, man, I depend on God. He knows my heart. He knows what's going on in other people's heart. He knows what's going on next. He knows what I've been through. He knows all of this stuff, and I can depend on him for guidance and for life and joy. We can be thankful and glad for God's presence in our life. And we can bless him for what he's done and for what he's about to do in and through us as individuals, as households, as a church family, as big C church across the world. Whether he comes tomorrow or he delays another thousand years, doesn't matter. We can be thankful for those things. The things that he gives us. He gives us guidance. He gives us joy. He gives us rest, food, shelter, reassurance, a solid foundation so that we will never be shaken. All of these things. Assurance of eternal life and rest in him. We can have some rest. That's why uh, we encourage you to take a day of Sabbath. Some people take that on a Sunday. We, we practice resting. And we rest in him with our finances and our relationships and our internal struggle. And we take a day to rest because someday we're just, it's all taken care of. We're going to rest fully in him and we're practicing. So because God is right beside you, because he offers to be in you and with you, Here's what I encourage you to do. Draw near to and depend on God. Why? For he's good. Last week we looked at Psalm 25 and we learned that you can trust in God for he's good. And this week I just encourage you to draw near to him and depend on him for he's good. And I want to encourage you again to partake in some Lent practices. Lent for the evangelical church is a kind of a crazy idea and we've all gone away from it because it's traditional and some mainline churches and tradition it just becomes a thing they do and it's dead and it's practice and but there's some life there in taking some time to focus on preparing our hearts uh, to spend extra time with Jesus and so Lent begins on Wednesday and then Thursday Friday Saturday we're taking some extra days of prayer and fasting as a church as I said there's resources at the back on the on the black shelves there you can take there's two of them one ex talks about Lent in general and that the opportunities we have to go deeper with God the other uh, talks about fasting in general it gives you a guideline if you've never fasted so uh, what people typically do and what I'll be doing is I'll pick something to fast from or a couple things to fast from for all of Lent. Typically, it's taking something away that draws our hearts and minds away from God. So sometimes people do like a caffeine or coffee. Sometimes it's social media, something they do, something. Just changing your behavior enough that you focus your heart on God. But if you just make it about diet, or like I'm, I'm changing a habit, and you miss out on the spiritual aspect, spending time with God, you miss out on the whole thing. So find something for the next 40 days leading up to Easter that you set aside so you can put God first. And for three days, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I encourage you to fast. There's different kinds of food fasts where we focus mainly on food fasts during that time. Uh, ask your doctor, absolutely, if you know, there's some people who can't fast, but there's partial food fasts. You can skip a meal once during that time or just fast for a day or a meal a day or what, whatever you might. But if you've never experienced what it's like to set aside something important to realize that God is more important and takes care of that thing that you usually take care of, well, you're missing out. There's something significant and mysterious 
In, Paul uses the word mystery several times in his letters. It's not this like theoretical mystery. It's this, there's something spiritually significant. We can't quite explain it and God hasn't quite fleshed it out for us. But there's something mysterious, something spiritually significant about fasting. Jesus fasted for 40 days before he began ministry. And if Jesus needed to fast that much, being God himself, I think fasting, preparing for Easter and preparing our hearts and having a season of repentance to say, God, look in my life. What's off? Make it right is spiritually significant. So get those resources. Take this time for you and your household um, to draw near to God, to learn to depend on him. Why? Because he's good. God is good. We're going to head into a time of communion. And so communion is uh, Lord's table. Jesus instituted this. Um, on the night he was betrayed. This is uh, meant for those who are followers of Jesus. But if you have not decided to follow Jesus, and you're searching and you're wondering, the awesome part is that Jesus sat around a table. I'm going to read something in a minute about that. But he sat around a table with his 12 disciples, his apostles, and he dipped the bread that would represent his body into the cup that represented his shed blood, and he passed it across the table to Judas. He knew Judas wasn't his follower anymore. He knew Judas was going to betray him. But yet he invited him to the table too. And so I think communion and Lord's Supper is a wonderful time to begin to believe in Jesus. Communion is a time where we re remember what Jesus has done. It's a time where we reflect on where we're at with God. Like really consider, am I walking close to him? What would it look like if I lived as if he were right? beside me. It's a time you repent. Term means turning from your sin. So you confess, God, there's this stuff I'm holding on to, and I, I want you to help me be rid of that and live in your way. We be renewed. We ask God for renewal, and we rest in him. We spend time saying, you know what, this, this practical thing we do, eating bread and drinking the cup, is, is a reminder of the promise that we can rest in what Jesus has done, because it's not about what we do to save ourselves. And so this is a wonderful time where you can admit uh, your sin before God. You can believe in him or be renewed in your belief and you can choose to follow Jesus. And Paul, the apostle, gives instruction to the Corinthian church who was a mess. Man, they would meet for communion and they'd get drunk and keep food from the poor people they're supposed to share with. And so he gives these instructions. I'm thankful that we're not that this morning, but maybe our heart is a little bit off. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. So a new way between us and God. For God to come and rescue us and be in relationship with us. It's confirmed in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who drinks... Uh, who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. That's a pretty strong warning. 
What does it mean uh, not to, you know, to, to eat this unworthily? It simply means to treat it as the thing we do. It doesn't mean we need to be perfect in our hearts. Sometimes that's taught. I disagree with that. None of us can be perfect. It doesn't mean we come with open hearts to say, God, I clearly have some stuff that's not right. So thank you that you've already forgiven me of this. Thank you that you've already taken care of this. Show it to me and help me to walk new. It does mean if you just do this and it's just a thing and you don't really care, that's eating unworthily. Jesus died for us to have new life. As part of this this morning, if you need some prayer, if you just would like to pray for someone, uh, myself and our, uh, some of our elders will be just off to the side here. And we'll pray with you. Uh, if you need to be anointed with oil, it's a New Testament teaching. The oil is not magic or healing, but oil is a sign from the Old Testament of purification. And so God says through James that if anyone's sick or needs prayer, call the elders of the church, anoint them with oil, and pray. And the prayer of simple people of faith is effective. And God listens to that. So we would love to pray for your physical or spiritual or emotional healing. Um, or pray for anything you need. So this is your time. Chrissy's going to play quietly, and you come forward, and you take the elements and take them back to your seats after I pray. You take your time to uh, eat the bread and drink the cup. If you'd like to come up for prayer, you can do that. And if the service, if when the service ends, it's going to end if the service ends. When the service ends, if there are still people praying over here, just be sensitive to that. We can stack the chairs later and stuff like that. Just try and give uh, a, a, enough of a quiet space for those times to finish. So take this time with Jesus. Um, learn to depend on him. Draw close to him in this moment because he's good. And come for prayer if you'd like. We'd love to pray with you. So I'm just going to pray and then welcome you to come forward for prayer or to take uh, the cup and the bread. Jesus, thank you for your broken body for us, for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for your shed blood. And thank you for rising again that we might have new life. And so, Father, as we eat and drink this morning, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he's done in our lives, for forgiveness, for freedom, for new life. I pray for those who have not yet admitted their sin, who've not yet believed in you, who've not yet chosen to follow you. And I pray that, Lord, this morning you would work in their heart through your spirit, that um, this morning would be the day they begin a journey with you in new life, that path from death to life. We thank you. We bless you. And we ask that you would be clear to us as we spend this time to renew us, to convict us, and to call us to walk in renewed faith, renewed power, renewed freedom because of you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.